you can notice different themes and patterns in Proverbs the more chapters you read. Something that's probably stood out to you to this point in our study of Proverbs is that instructions in this book have a lot of statements telling you where things are going to lead. It doesn't just give you an instruction, though it could. It doesn't just give you a prohibition or a command, though the Lord could. There is a wisdom in being able to say, here on this path, with this instruction, followed, here's where it will lead. Ignored, here is where that will lead. The instruction of Proverbs is filled with statements telling you where things are heading. And I think the reason for that is so that you might look down the horizon that Proverbs is aiming at and ask yourself, do I want to go where it's heading? Do I, in fact, want the end result of where this road will lead, where these choices accumulate and take me? It gives us that horizon, the far horizon that the Bible's view can alone give us because our view is so short. Our limits are true and real with our everyday finitude and lack of full understanding of all things. And even the justifications of our daily lives that we might think, well, it'll be okay though if I do this small transgression or if I justify this act of disobedience here, I'm sure everything will be fine. But the book of Proverbs wants to shatter our delusions that you can manage your disobedience and that you can control outcomes and consequences. The Bible wants you to know where the path of life laid out for us will lead and where the path of folly will lead. Maybe you've had to teach somebody the layout of an area before. Somebody might be new to a region and you say, okay, well, if you take this highway, here's where you're going to go. Here are the the grocery stores or here are the restaurants. And if you take this road over here, here's what's along this path. And you can go to this particular school or go to that particular hospital. If you are trying to acquaint yourself, you need to know where the roads go. It is true that Proverbs is written primarily to those in younger years of life. There's a reason for this. Younger people don't think about consequences the way they should. We even know this scientifically. Medicine and science has released amazing data that confirms the very kinds of concerns that the proverbial writer has for his younger counterpart. There's a specific region of the brain, the amygdala, that's responsible for your immediate reactions of fear and aggressive behavior, and it develops quite early. But as another writer explained, the frontal cortex, the area of your brain that controls reasoning and helps you think before you act, that takes longer to develop. That part of the brain is still changing and maturing into adulthood and typically won't fully develop until around age 25. Pictures of a brain for an adolescent work differently than the pictures of the brain in adults the kinds of decisions and problem solving. In fact, it can be the case where adults might look at the decisions of someone who is younger and ask themselves, did you think at all about what was going to happen? Probably not the way they should have actually at all, at all. Not only does the Proverbs writer recognize the need to help the younger see where these roads are going, we recognize the very biological development requires it. Those that are younger are less likely to think before they act. They're less likely to foresee, as they ought to, dangerous consequences and where inappropriate and rebellious behaviors will lead. 
We have to add immediately, however, that the Proverbs writer expects sound decision-making from God's image bearers. So you don't look at this kind of situation and think, well, I guess that there's no hope for anyone to make a right or a wrong decision until around, or a right decision, a sound reasoned decision until what, 20s? No, that's not what it's saying at all. It also doesn't mean you're not responsible for the choices you make before your frontal cortex is fully formed. Instead, knowing these various things of the concern that the Proverbs writer has, and that our own understanding of biological development lays out for us, it can help parents and teachers and caregivers and and people in pastoral ministry and other spiritual leaders and guides reason well and think better with those in their lives. The book of Proverbs wants you to reason well. The book of Proverbs wants to help you think about your life in a way that's not just short term, but to tell you where things are going. This book wants to help us see the path we're heading on and not just the ultimate destination. Proverbs is very much concerned about what you're going to face in this life and how the fool will bring greater folly and harm upon themselves in this very life and how decisions of the righteous for their own good and for those in their lives will also bring near horizon blessing and flourishing in their lives. Your decisions impact others. And in verses 23 and 24, the writer wants to bring our attention to the results of toil versus mere talk. The results of toil versus mere talk. In all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. The crown of the wise is their wealth, but the folly of fools brings folly. This pair of Proverbs connects together the result of those who will give themselves to faithful labor versus someone who dreams about being disciplined, thinks about working hard, but in the end doesn't apply herself or himself at all. In verse 23, it recognizes the profit language over against the poverty language, and these are the extremes. Recognizing all things being equal as principles of Proverbs lay out for us this wisdom, we can say that those who would refuse to apply themselves to faithful labor and work, what should they expect but lack and deficiency in their lives, hardship and challenge? But if they would apply themselves and work diligently, he says here there is profit. In this toil, there is profit. Rather than emptiness and a lack Mere talk is the contrast to toil. So talk versus toil. Now you might say, well, some people might make their living talking. That's not what he means here. I mean, I'm doing that with you this morning, right? Here I am. And yet at the same time, talk here means talk that is not work. Talk that is not investing any kind of labor or effort, but merely talking about working and never actually getting around to it. What's the result expected? He doesn't want you to be surprised. He said mere talk tends one way. What's the way that it tends? To poverty. To a lack of being able to provide for yourself and any others in your life that you are responsible for. Which means that faithful work is an investment you are making in your own life. Faithful work is an investment you are making. You are making it for your well-being and the growth of your uh, household as well as those under your care. In toil, there is profit. That's what he's talking about there. So what's the takeaway of this uh, first line in Proverbs 14, 23? 
Work hard, work faithfully, work with integrity, and trust the Lord. There is an outcome here that's further expanded in verse 24. The crown of the wise is their wealth, but the folly of fools brings folly. That's a lot of folly and fool language that's played on, right? The folly of fools brings folly. That's not a misprint in our translations. Those words are meant to play on the idea that if the fool who refuses to live wisely is just engaging in mere talk and daydream about life, what should that fool expect? I think in verse 23, the toil and the profit is connected to verse 24, the crown of the wise is their wealth. The wise in verse 24 is the one who works with integrity and faithfully. Will everything be easy? It will not. Will there be challenges in a fallen world working as a sinner with sinners? Absolutely. But one must toil and labor and trust the Lord. Not presume, well, I will simply do nothing and uh, hopefully everything is just going to work out. Instead, he would tell you mere talk will lend only to poverty. The folly of fools brings folly. A crown is something visible in verse 24. If you uh, have uh, someone in the ancient world with a wreath or a crown on their head, that is meant to signify some kind of public status or achievement. The crown of the wise is their wealth, which means, I think, here in verse 24, the effort and investment that the wise worker has in their life results in a profitable living. In other words, they gain. They are able to invest in their life, and it is a wise investment. The crown of the wise is their wealth. The folly of fools brings folly. It is to say, what does the fool gain? With a lack of integrity, dishonest work, or, or a refusal to work altogether. It's a reaping and sowing principle here. If you sow folly, you reap folly. I don't think he's trying to be overly philosophical here. I don't think he's trying to complicate matters, but to rather say it in a concise way at the end of this verse. Don't be surprised that foolish living leads to foolishness. Folly there seems to be a kind of judgment from the Lord a reaping of what one has sown in their unwise state. Now, it is the case that while mere talk tends only to poverty, we would not want to say, well, then I guess words don't matter at all. Actually, verse 25 teaches that the way we talk and our speech does matter. Perhaps verse 25 will circumvent uh, or uh, preempt, I should say, a misunderstanding that you might draw from verses 23 to 24. And as the reader, we're told, oh, wait, words while mere talk tends only to poverty, words in other cases have a powerful role indeed. Verse 25 tells us about two kinds of witnesses. A truthful witness saves lives, but one who breathes out lies is deceitful. I wonder if this sounds familiar to you. This verse is familiar to a, an earlier statement in chapter 14, 5. A faithful witness does not lie, but a false witness breathes out lies. Very similar wording. A few changes there between those two statements in verse 5 and in verse 25. We'll think more about that in a moment. But this truthful witness is one who is in a position to speak about a matter and their conviction and their agenda is the truth. So that's what they are considered. They're a truthful witness because what their words reflect is reality. 
but the one who breathes out lies is deceitful. Breathes out. We saw this image earlier in verse 5. And during the time when we had a sermon over verse 5 weeks ago, I was trying to draw attention to the graphic, internal, deep nature of this language. The one who breathes out lies. Where you take a deep breath, it fills the depths of your lungs, and it's from there that deceit comes out. The one who breathes out lies is deceitful. It comes from the core of who they are, and their agenda is not the truth. Their agenda is an angle at something they're going to gain by misrepresenting the truth. A truthful witness is called such because of their commitment to what is right. The one who is deceitful is not committed to what is right. It is subjective to them, and therefore truth is at the service of some larger agenda. And however it needs to be twisted, manipulated, they will do what they need to. And from the depths of their being, such lies will rise. We have seen this kind of testimony language have a a strong emphasis in Proverbs to this point. Multiple times in our study of this book, in other words, we've seen the value of the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And the reason for this is that in the small community of Israel and in the larger intercultural relations of the promised land and beyond, societies and peoples and countries cannot relate in a sound and healthy way if they are not committed to what is true. A false witness, one who breathes out lies, is a detriment to soundness and health in a household and society. Because the ripple effect of this kind of thing is far-reaching. But a truthful witness even though there might be consequences for the truth, even though there might be challenges for living honestly, the commitment to the truth is entrusting the Lord to do what for doing what is right, entrusting him with the consequences. The one who breathes out lies is deceitful because their agenda is something else. Even the imagery of saving lives seems desirable. Who would want to have the opportunity to save lives and then decide not to? A truthful witness saves lives, and we commend that kind of behavior. We think that is bold, isn't it? That's courageous. Someone was in jeopardy, and a person did what was right to bring deliverance. We tell stories about these things, right? We watch videos of people engaging in heroic and courageous behaviors, and we recount them to others. Isn't that amazing that she did this or that he did that? There was some kind of act of deliverance when the moment mattered most. A truthful witness saves lives because truly the reputations, character, present and and future and livelihood can be at stake with what you say someone did or didn't do. A truthful witness delivers people from false accusations. And a truthful witness also may ensure that the guilty are rightfully punished to deliver others who might be in greater harm if the guilty go unpunished. Truly then, your words impact other people. Both in legal settings and in non-legal settings, you should think about how your speech carries a kind of ripple effect where the lives of others will either be helped and enriched or compromised and harmed because of what you're committed to. Let us be people committed to the truth. To be considered not just any old witness, but a truthful witness and not one who from the depths of our being has the breath of lies. 
So I think the lives or the souls delivered here are, um, it's not about you delivering somebody from eternal damnation. Here, this is talking about the temporal and earthly desires to um, consider the well-being and welfare of others in this life, their reputations and careers, their health and otherwise. We're told earlier in chapter 619 of Proverbs, the Lord hates a false witness who breathes out lies. One of the motivations then to tell the truth is not only to ensure that the rightful outcome takes, takes place in a inner uh, relational and social sphere, but also because it pleases the Lord. We might even say not just even though, but above all, because it pleases the Lord. The Lord hates a false witness who breathes out lies. Chapter 6, verse 19. We are not loving our neighbor if we don't love the truth. And that is because when we are committed to any manner of deceit or manipulation, lives will be impacted as a result of that. You want to love your neighbor well? Commit yourself to the truth. Speak honestly. When asked questions and when uh, given the opportunity in legal or non-legal settings to utter testimony or bear witness about a matter, do what is truthful. Speak what will honor the Lord. Lying occurs because you're committed to something else. Back in our sermon from chapter 14, verse 5, I shared this with you, that people lie for different reasons. They lie for attention. They lie because they're scared. They lie because they want to avoid consequences they think the truth would bring. They lie out of convenience or they lie out of laziness. Sometimes the truth can be awkward or time-consuming. People lie to impress others and they lie to use others and they lie to retaliate and they lie to slander and accuse. There's not just one reason. But under it all, there is some kind of benefit the liar thinks they're gaining. And that is what motivates these different reasons. Be committed to honest speech. So yes, mere talk tends only to poverty. So let us work hard and speak truthfully in verses 23 through 25. I think these last two verses of 26 and 27 lay out for us what we need as the banner of our lives and really the animating center of why we do all that we do. Proverbs has talked about this language of fear of the Lord before. But I want to suggest to you that fear of the Lord is what ought to lie behind honest speech. And that fear of the Lord is what ought to lie behind faithful and honest work. That above all, we're not trying to just please others or get our way in some kind of social horizontal level, but because we, we are those who confess to know God and that that makes a difference in how we live. It makes a difference in how we work, and it makes a difference in how we speak. He tells us in verses 26 to 27 that there are results, we might even call them benefits, of fearing the Lord. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. And then in verse 27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. These con this concept of the fear of the Lord is opening the book of Proverbs in chapter 1. It ends the book of Proverbs in chapter 31. And at various spots along the way, it's very carefully placed as a reminder of what surrounds and frames wisdom. Because again, the Proverbs writer is not just giving you some self-improvement tips. 
the, the Proverbs writer is not telling you, you know, you might have life not working out for you very well. So whoever you are, put a few of these steps into practice. The Proverbs are surrounded by the notion of fearing the Lord. That's what the wise grow in. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs has no path of life guidance to those who are in rebellion against their Lord, the Lord. The first guidance would be repent and follow the Lord that you might then live wisely. But there is no wise living in defiance of God. And that is why the book of Proverbs must always be kept in its context of knowing God and fearing God. But what does it mean to fear the Lord? If in the fear of the Lord, various other things will be true, then we must have a clarity on our minds of what it means. And truly, the wicked ought to fear the Lord in a trembling sense. They ought to tremble before him that the sovereign and almighty God is a righteous judge before whom they will stand on that last and final day. But fear of the Lord does not always mean a a sense or a connotation of being scared or frightened. To, To fear the Lord in the wisdom literature can also mean to revere and honor the Lord. And that's the primary meaning in Proverbs. The fear of the Lord speaks about an honor and a reverence for God, which is not in the heart of the unrighteous. The wicked most certainly do not have a reverence and honor of God. They live out whatever they revere and honor above all. It's just not the Lord. That's not what drives them. That's not what shapes the way they work. It's not what shapes the way they talk. Something else motivates them. A love for self, a love for man. In the fear of the Lord, certain things are true. And that means, friends, you and I must think to ourselves often in the light of our daily decisions and path we walk by living in a way that shows I want to honor God, that I want to revere the Lord. And he's telling this to someone who would even be primarily of a younger audience in the book of Proverbs, the father teaching his son that he might walk wisely all his days. That, of course, doesn't mean it's only a young age-related question. Not at all. But it is to say, even to the young, there is an emphasis. You should fear the Lord, young children. Adolescents and teenagers, you should fear the Lord and reverence Him and honor the Lord. It ought to be the thing that most shapes the way that you think of your life. In the fear of the Lord, various pictures are given here. Various phrases to unpack. The first of four phrases that we see in verses 26 and 27 is a strong confidence. A strong confidence. From the depths of one's being, a love and reverence for God would lead to, in the fear of the Lord, a strong confidence. It's the image of something steady. It's the image of something that is resilient and firm. Something that can be relied upon. This is a person who is confident and reliant on God. They revere God. They honor God. Their hope is in God. And so this person of strong confidence is not about a confidence in the self. This is not saying, well, you know, what we all need is just some more self-confidence. What we all need is more God-reliance. That's what's good for the self. And the self here, it has a strong confidence in God. The fear of the Lord and strong confidence in God is what is affirmed here. This is not brittle or fickle confidence because God isn't brittle or fickle. God is almighty and therefore our confidence can be proportional to it. Our confidence can be strong because we believe the Bible. 
We want to learn the Bible so that we might have a strong confidence in God. We want to learn the Old Testaments and the New Testaments, the prophets and the Gospels, the book of Acts and the Proverbs. We want to think about the stories in Genesis and the book of Revelation. We want the Bible to shape our understanding of God so that we can be selves who have confidence in Him. Amen. Their confidence is strong in God because they know the Scripture's teaching of God. They know that God is good. They know that God is faithful. They know that God has all power. They know that his wisdom transcends all the wisdom of man and is perfect. And so when this says here that in the fear of the Lord, there is a strong confidence, it's because of what they know of God. It's not because they look at their lives and feel so clever and mighty, so persevering and strong. It would commend that the weakest saint would come with strong confidence in God. The strength is not in the sinner, but in the God they serve. And therefore, the weary find rest and strength in our almighty God. When John Gill was writing about this passage, Gill said, Such who fear the Lord may be confident that he has a love to them, a delight in them, and that his eye is upon them, and that his heart is toward them, and will communicate to them every needful good. Amen. How would this not stir and cultivate greater confidence in God when we will think about in the fear of the Lord what it is to know such a God? When Charles Spurgeon was preaching about Proverbs 14, he said the fear of the Lord builds a strong confidence. And why? It's good to ask that question. Why? Spurgeon said, because they that fear God know that God is infinitely loving to them. And he is immutable and unchangeable. He's unsearchably wise and omnipotently strong on their behalf. How can they help having confidence in such a God? Spurgeon says that's not all they know. We have strong confidence in God because they know that a full atonement has been made for their sins. Jesus has borne the wrath of God for them. How can they help being confident in such a God? They know that the same Jesus has risen from the dead and lives to plead for them and that they have the ears of the Almighty. How can they help, Spurgeon says, having such confidence in God? He says they believe that the same Jesus is head over all things to his church. He's the ruler of all providence and to him all power is given in heaven and on earth. You see, Spurgeon recognizes that they can have a strong confidence, not because of the circumstances or all that they wish they were, but because God will always be what he is. And because God will always be what he is, my confidence in him can be strong. Think of the Bible story in Daniel 3. Here are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Bow before this image when the music plays or into the fiery furnace you go. I want you to listen to their strong confidence. Daniel 3.16 says, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar. We have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand. But even if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. What a strong confidence in God. What a fear of the Lord. And a joy animating with such confidence, even heading toward a a fiery judgment. Indeed, the Proverbs are clear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. 
the foundation of wisdom in the sphere of the Lord, what would result in coming to know this God? A rising greater confidence in him. Look at the second benefit in Proverbs 14. In Proverbs 14, 26, and his children will have a refuge. Oh, I love this line. This is a very important line. Again, we are reminded that our commitments, pursuits, and decisions don't only impact us. The good news for you who are caring for others younger than yourself is that your commitment and fear of the Lord also influences others around you too. And you and your fear of God can cultivate a love in your play, in your home, your household, and in your relationships where others can find God as their refuge because they are looking to you as an example. And they're listening to you as someone wiser and older and farther along. And you fear the Lord. What you show them is that they have a refuge too. You're not leaving them without a refuge. You, by your words and your actions and your decisions, you are pointing them to the refuge of all refuges, the one who is the Lord himself. His children will have a refuge. Your children need to see your strong confidence in the Lord. This is not something to keep private in your thoughts but to say out loud all the time. John Piper says, until children can know God in a deep and personal way, we are the image and embodiment of God in their lives. And if we are confident, he says, and reliable and safe for them, they will be more likely to cleave to God as their refuge when the storms break over them later, which they will. Well, the children can have a refuge Why would you rather them not? And I think the image of refuge here could lead us to think, well, why would they need one? You know, what's going on in the circumstances of life and the challenges of this world? This such a refuge would be good news. Well, friends, if you looked out to sea and you saw a mighty tsunami coming and time to take refuge, you would think, given this thing on the way, refuge is our hope. And if the righteous and holy God has appointed a day where all will be taken to account before him. And that in our sinfulness, our only hope is knowing Christ Jesus, then even those younger than us must know of this refuge and our strong confidence in him. Let your children see your confidence in God. You should be open about reading the Bible, talking about the goodness and wisdom of God in your life, talking about answers to prayer that God has given. Your children should hear you sing praises to God. They should hear you pray with conviction in front of them and with them. They may not realize it at the time, but what you're doing is you are pointing them to the refuge in the fear of the Lord. And they are seeing that, even if not consciously recognizing it at the moment. There is a third image here. We've seen imagery of strong confidence, of refuge for the children. And in verse 27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. Returning then to this phrase, fear of the Lord, this third image of a fountain of life is attached to it. Earlier in chapter 13, the fear of the Lord was spoken of and something else was talked about. Think of how similar these two verses are. Chapter 13 and in verse 14, the teaching of the wise is a fountain of life. 
And here we're told the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. Well, how do those two things go together? The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life or the fear of the Lord? Is it one or the other? Or if it's both, how? The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life because of the content of what is taught. The content of the teaching of the wise is about God, knowing God, following God, and I would even say fearing the Lord. And so therefore, if the wise are teaching others to fear God, then indeed fearing the Lord is to know and revere him. How would that not be a fountain of life? God is the source of all life. He's the giver and sustainer of all life. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life and a living fountain of water was very desirable in the ancient world. Oh, if you were traveling around friends in the desert and you were going through these wilderness and wandering places and you couldn't find living water and you would just come upon some standing and uh, repugnant water that looked not just sour, but, but, not, but also undrinkable, likely poisonous. It would be so distressing to not come across what your body needed and your soul was not made for poisonous fountains. Your soul was not made to thrive on and be sustained by the empty and bankrupt promises of sin in this world. You, my friend, were made to know God. And the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, a vibrant, ever-flowing, ever-increasing fountain from the very being of God who is the source of all life. That's where life is from. That's where everlasting life proceeds. And if you will revere God and honor God, you will know in your very life what it is to be satisfied in God and for your heart to delight in God. You were made for this. This is the epic reason for your very existence. You were not made for the banal things of the world. You were not made for the trinkets and the glittering and the gold of this passing age. You were made to know God who is the fountain of life. The writer puts before you then, the fear of the Lord, the worship of God, the love of God, the honor of God, a fountain of life. Why is it that kind of benefit? Why is that the result of the fear of the Lord? Because to know God, to revere and to honor God is to have one's being oriented unto God. It's to be aimed at and open and receiving from God his promises and blessing. And what God is is a life giver for his people. Fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, this spring of water. It's a metaphor of flowing, bubbling water. The opposite would be undesirable, some kind of stagnant puddle. No one wants to drink out of that except something that doesn't know any better. And what I want to tell you this morning is that the Bible wants us to know better. The Bible wants us to see and to know God, and the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. That's so desirable, and these pictures are to stir within us those desires. Don't you long for that kind of ever-flowing and vibrant fountain? Then fear the Lord, honor God, revere His name, worship Him above all. There's a reason for this, and it comes to the final and fourth picture of these fear of the Lord verses. At the end of verse 27, we're told that the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, that one may turn away from the snares of death. You see, one of the benefits of the fear of the Lord is deliverance from destruction. Snares of death entangle. That's what a snare does. A snare is meant to be quite subtle, so that an animal that is just coming along would not see it as open and clear and obvious. It's a trap. And the trap is to spring so that the animal is ensnared in the snares of death. Picture death as a hunter. 
Something that seeks us as a predator would seek prey. But the Lord has come to deliver the perishing while sin and iniquity have sought to overcome and ensnare us. If you knew that there was a snare of death in your path, you would step very carefully. If you knew that if your foot caught along this particular wire and a snare of death awaited, you would look so cautiously and prudently as you stepped. You would not just knowingly stick your foot into the snare either. Oh, there it is. Let me walk right up to it and put my foot inside. When it comes to folly and rebellion against God, then, you either don't realize that such folly is a snare, or you don't believe it will ensnare you. And in the first case, ignorance needs to be corrected by instruction. That sin and rebellion against God is indeed a snare and that we would be wise and not fools to turn from such snares of death and to pursue the Lord with reverence and honor. But if someone would knowingly plunge into folly and rebellion and think that they will not be ensnared by the snares of death, then we have delusion. Delusion that needs to be corrected by humility and trust in the Lord. For one's arrogance and presumption of life would seek to say, I can do what I want and manage and deal with whatever comes. But the snares of death, friends, are a metaphor here for a reason. To warn us. Because nobody in their right thinking would step into the snares of death. Oh, the Proverbs lay out for us these pictures. Both to draw and allure and to repel and horrify so that we would see the fountain of life and the snares of death and recognize exactly the decision we need to make. In the gospel news, Christ has come for the perishing and the fountain of life is the cross. In the paradox of God's wisdom and word, the redemptive plan is that the fountain of life would be a fountain of blood. That the Savior's death would be to save us from the snares of death. The hymn writer has put it memorably. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Let's pray.